0: That's Stamps.com. Code program. A Lifetime original podcast.
1: This episode covers topics that include murder and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Everyone report to the ship deck. Everybody report there to the ship
2: deck. We have an important an announcement. announcement. Quinn. I like I who who shares this announcement. God, let's be let's be really mysterious about it. Not reveal it. Make keep it a little suspenseful.
0: Um, No, no, we wouldn't do that to you. We'll tell
2: them. Um, we have some bummer news that um we want to share with you. Um, and don't worry, we have good news after. Um, but sadly, crime of a lifetime will be powering closing its down. doors. Yes. We have three more episodes, so including this one, two more after this. Um, so don't worry. We won't leave you completely hanging. Unless our last episode features a hanging. <laughs> Unless. And that is a really big caveat. And I want to be very clear. This won't be the last time you hear from Carrie and Quinn, but it is going to be sort of the end of this iteration of Carrie and Quinn on Crime of a Lifetime. Um, All of the wonderful people we've worked with, all of the wonderful podcasts that we've been alongside the last year. It's truly been an honor, and we're really excited for the next chapter, which is kind of like an old
1: chapter for us. Yeah, we're going back to our old podcast, Truly Darkly Creepily, and you'll be able to hear us there uh, every Friday. So you will still get your crime dose from your two, dare I say third favorite host. I don't know your (laughs) roster. I'm not going to be presumptuous and put us at the top, but I am going to say you're listening right now. So you like us a little bit, for sure. And on our other
2: podcast, it's a little more loosey-goosey. We get a little of conversation of what's going on in me and Quinn's life, and then you get two... Two stories per episode. So if you were listening to Crime of Lifetime, going, "Ugh, I wish there was more." Have we got it in store for you at Truly Darkly Creeply? So after this last episode airs, which is the first Tuesday in August, that Friday we're going to be coming out with a brand new episode of Truly Darkly Creeply. So please tune in there. We'd love to have you. Um, and. Well, until then, you'll hear us on Crime of a Lifetime for the next
1: two episodes. But should we, this being, you know what, though, let, you'll hear us on Crime of a Lifetime today because we're about to tell you a pretty crazy a story. A pretty crazy story. Well, speaking of which, we have to ask,
2: this sort of takes place around a restaurant service. And Quinn, you have a lot of experience working in the service industry.
0: Oh, hell you yeah. You have uh, a, a lot.
2: Incredibly
1: so, but I've certainly <laughs> served my time. I Oh, good you know, pun, I have by a the lot way. Of,
2: Good pun. You served your time. I like it.
1: Um, I have a lot of friends that um, are Israeli. And you know, when you're you're Israeli, you have to serve in the Israeli army. And I was always saying that I think when you're American, you should have to serve in the restaurant industry for legitimately two years, just so that people have um, a common language and um, the ability to understand and cut their fellow uh, server a break uh, every now and again, because you just uh, run into... So much garbage when you're working there—garbage customers and garbage bosses. It becomes—it is not a chill environment. It becomes
2: very clear amongst my friends, or not? I, I, you know what I'm gonna say—they're not my friends. I think in order to be my friend, if you if you want to be my lover, you've got to get with my friends. But if you want to be my friend, (laughs) you have to have worked in the service industry. I have not worked in a restaurant proper, but boy, have I catered. Have I bartended at a Broadway theater? Yes. I have done both of those things. And I, I've worked retail, which I think is very similar to the service industry.
1: I'm going to say, this having done both, that retail is rated G and <laughs> yeah. working in a restaurant or a bar, it's, it's rated R, yeah, folks. People- like, there's a lot of late nights. There's a lot of partying because when you think about it, oh the God. way that your lifestyle adapts to that is that you – Stay up much later. Yeah. Um, your shift ends, and you drink much more because you're drinking at the bars that are open late, or or you're drinking at the restaurant or bar you're at once. The Which door's is dangerous. And then you're sleeping in. It's not a healthy lifestyle. No. I don't recommend no. it. Um, but I have lived it, and you might uh, be going back. Thank to God, it. <laughs> unlike some of the people in this story, I lived to tell you about it.
2: <laughs> I am. You know, I will say. This is what happens when you don't tip your servers. So let's launch into it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime
0: of a Lifetime. Okay, we should introduce
2: you to our main characters. We have David and Don Viennes. And they live in Lomita, California. And they actually, well, David owns a restaurant. He owns the Time Cafe. And so on the night of October 18th, 2009, the two of them, Don and David, they're at their apartment and they've had a tough week. I mean, Owning a restaurant is no joke. It's a big deal. David's Stressful. putting in like a hundred hours a week. He's dealing mm. with those uh, what is it? Those uh stiffers, what did I say?
1: He's dealing with cereal stiffers. <laughs> He's dealing with
2: cereal stiffers. You know, life is tough. And so they want to let their hair down, they want to let loose. And Dawn goes, Hey, David, I got a great idea. Do you want to do a little cocaine with me? Um, this is not the first time they're venturing into this world. Spoiler alert restaurants i think they use a lot of cocaine you know you got to stay up late you got to clean in it. in the food not in the food absolutely you're not gonna waste it on the food One sprinkle of cocaine <laughs> move no. over salt no 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 um listen <laughs> salt with an edge <laughs> listen those cereal stiffers, salt with a little cocaine what story is happening what you need to know david and don they're in their apartment. They're doing a couple bumps of cocaine to take the edge off because why not? David owns this restaurant. Dawn is his hostess. They're married. Let's get into it.
1: Well, I would say you said a couple of bumps and, I, and I, I'm i being presumptuous because I you wasn't think it's there. Lines? But I'm picturing, I think it's lines. I'm going to say, I'm going to take it a step further and say I think it's lines. Again, not uncommon in the service industry. Um, but obviously, like if you've had a stressful time, doing cocaine. I wouldn't recommend it for taking the stress off your plate. I think that can amplify things. And in this case, it totally does. They get into a heated argument and David accuses Dawn of stealing money from their restaurant. Ah. And Dawn's pissed. She's pissed at him. So this starts this huge fight. And they've already been kind of bickering throughout the day. So you can imagine they've got Steph, maybe they didn't, uh, Fully Put aside resolve. or get through. They didn't resolve it. And then they're on cocaine. And now's a great time to dive back in oh, and resolve it while on drugs. This
2: sounds, I mean, again, as Quinn said, to take the edge off, we wouldn't recommend cocaine. But I got to say, too, in the middle of a day of arguing with your partner, you're going to sprinkle in a little cocaine. My God, probably not a smart decision. So according to David, what happens is, is Dawn is not letting up. She's wanting to talk about it. she's wanting to address it and she's not letting it go and David goes enough I want to go to sleep so he pushes his dresser in front of the bedroom door to keep her out and then he pops an Ambien I just want to say the FDA does not in any way approve of this story <laughs> oh <my> no no <laughs>
1: But I think it's very funny that you said they don't want to, she she wants to address the problems and he puts a sir Ooh. in front of the door. Intrigue. And she is amped up and hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, but it does because it has a woman scorned and on cocaine. So she's superhuman, shoves this dresser, with the door out of the way and is like no we're gonna keep fighting i've got a lot of fight left and here we go and david is now pissed because he's counting the hours till he has to get up and go back to work he's got he's gonna get like four hours of sleep at this point so it's that feeling of desperation of like i cannot keep talking to you about this i absolutely need to rest but don't worry david has a solution what is the solution you wonder fairly obvious one. A camo- sure we've all been here before. A little chamomile
2: tea? A little chamomile tea and a nighttime um, meditation as a couple?
1: No, he's going to tie Dawn up. Huh. Okay. Like what? Took a turn. <laughs> yeah, see, this is so, in all the fights I've ever been in Never with any that. partner Never or person, that. I don't think either one of us has been like, I guess we'll just have to tie this person up. <laughs> but this is what David decides to do. He ties Dawn up and puts duct tape on her mouth, around her feet, around her hands. And you're already thinking to yourself, who does this? The answer is David, because this isn't the first time he's done it. He's actually done this to Don twice before. And it wasn't even because they were fighting necessarily. He says that it was because he didn't want her driving around wasted, whacked out on Coke and drinking. So it was just like he was shutting down her night. He was like, I'm putting you to bed, and the best way to do that is not chamomile tea. It is duct tape. I mean, chivalry. Am I right, folks? Well, they do say chivalry is dead, and I would say
2: chivalry leads to death in this situation because Dawn does not cry, does not scream or resist as he restrains her. He leaves her on the living room floor, and then that ambient clicks in. We get like a little like lullaby in the background. And then like a little crow crying, crow, a little hen. What is it? A little cock-a-doodle-doo moment? Uh -uh! There it is. The next morning, David wakes up. He goes, huh, totally rested after that nice little ambient." He gets out of his bedroom. He walks in the living room. And there he sees Dawn. She is dead.
1: Well, I would say that... Having realized that Dawn is dead, uh, David's got to be looking at his options right now. And it doesn't feel great to call the police and then try to explain why your wife that has duct tape on her arms, her feet and her face is dead. Plus, they both have cocaine in their system. In fact, the reason that Dawn died is that she vomited from probably drinking and, and uh, cocaine and not being able to breathe. And she had that duct tape on her mouth. So she choked. So what happens when David realizes this has happened, according to him, is that he panics. He does not know what to do. So the first thing he does is just grab her and push her into a closet. Then he's like, what am I doing? That's my closet. Takes her then and puts, I mean, what's that going to solve? Puts her in a garbage bag and, and then takes it to the dumpster behind his restaurant. His wife is in a garbage bag in a dumpster. This is your wife, dude. What are you doing?
2: Um, I just have to interject here. We've said it in, like, a lot of roundabout ways. To be clear, the only side of the story we have is David's. So I just, in terms of, like, that little salt, that kosher salt that he's throwing Mm -hmm. on his dishes— Let's just all take a little piece of it while we hear this story, right? So sure. it's the next day. It's October 19th, 2009. And David, he's got a meeting. He's got things to do at his restaurant, the Time Cafe. By the way, because you can't see how it's spelled, it's spelled T-H-Y-M-E. So we love a pun. The herb. We love a pun. Um, now, David shows up to this meeting. He looks tired. He looks upset. And he enters this meeting saying, hey, listen, listen. Dawn's actually not going to be working here anymore. Um, No explanation, no reason. Um, In fact, uh, oh, this young waitress who works here, this woman named Kathy, she agrees to take on all of Dawn's responsibilities.
1: What's David going to do now? He's got to start sort of spreading a story uh, because people are like, where's Dawn? So he's like, oh, we broke up. She wanted me to get out of the restaurant industry, and she had this horrible drinking problem that she refused to get help for. And I got to say, a little bit pot calling the kettle because last time we checked in on you, David, you were on cocaine. You had alcohol and Ambien in your system. So, even though Dawn, this is true, she's got yeah. a, or had a bit of a drinking problem. Um, and in fact, David's daughter, Jackie, recalls that Dawn would secretly drink a beer when she woke up. Like she'd wake up, go down to the kitchen, she's having a beer when most of us are having a coffee, and she'd just keep drinking the rest of the day. You know, I think she was just very unhappy and didn't know how to deal with her problems. It sounds like she had a lot of them uh, yeah. living with David being probably the primary one.
2: What's also important to note is that when David is telling this story – I think people knew that Dawn had a drinking problem, some substance abuse issues. Mm -hmm. However, it was not like her to skip town. It was not like her to just disappear Mm -hmm. off the face of the earth. She had friends. She has family. She has people who love her and care about her. She had commitments that she made that suddenly it's just radio silence. She's not there anymore. So people are hearing the story from David, and it's just not adding up. It's like, oh, she was mad. You wanted to get out of the restaurant industry? She could have broken up with you, but... Why isn't she coming over to my house? So people start to become suspicious of David's story.
1: So it is now October 20th, 2009, and Dawn is supposed to show up for something really important. Like you were saying, Carrie, she's missing all kinds of appointments, but this one is near and dear to her heart. She's supposed to be with her friend Karen while Karen goes to get cancer treatment. But she doesn't show up. She doesn't call Karen. So Karen's like, what is going on? This isn't her. I'm going to go check on her. So she goes to the restaurant. Of course, she's not there. And David is. And he is like, you know, covered in sweat, looking crazy, probably looking like a guy that does a lot of drugs and uh, is a little bit um, guilty. Sorry. Agitated. <laughs> Gu- oh Yeah. Agitated.
2: You, I say guilty. You say agitated. Agitated. Uh, Karen walks in and she immediately asks David, what's up? Where's Don? Um, and David tells sort of a similar story. But if you'll notice, as David keeps telling people these stories, they become a little bit more embellished. It's just a little bit more and more information, different details. He tells Karen that him and Don had fought because Don refused to go to rehab, which again is different than what he said before, right? He said that she wanted him out of the restaurant industry. Um, And then he says, you know, also, I was mad at her because, uh, you know, I suspected that she was stealing from the restaurant for a while now. So then he asks Karen, who, by the way, is like fresh off of chemo, fighting cancer. And he asks Karen to go through the receipts. And when Karen goes through the receipts, she finds a discrepancy of less than $25. And I gotta say, anyone who's worked in the restaurant industry, that's nothing. That's two <laughs> Not appetizers.
1: That, a, it's also just a rude bluff. Yeah, and he, like you he's made your bluffing, David. And then you made this poor woman do your accounting, on chemo do math. It's just, like, just rude. What a boor- like all afternoon, that just sucks. And so Karen then proceeds to ask more questions
2: of David, right? She says, she asks, you know, did Dawn take her things when she left? Because she sees Dawn's car still in the parking lot right there in front of her eyes. And David Mm -hmm. then says, you know, that car isn't actually working right. It's actually not registered to Dawn. And Dawn did take some stuff. She took some luggage with her. Um, He has all of the answers, but none of them seem to be adding up.
1: And he's staying, like I said, he was agitated when she walked in. He's still agitated. He's like pouring sweat while he's talking to her and being like, I don't uh, – like, you know, it's that like defensiveness that I think people – she's reading into it and she's like, this is weird. And at one point he's being dismissive but he's like talking about Dawn and he's like, oh, good riddance. And it's that thing where you're like, good riddance? What do you mean good riddance? Like, where is she? What are you talking about? So – Three days later, she follows up and she's like, hey, any update on Dawn, David? And no one's seen her. Do you know what's up? And he's like, oh, I've talked to her. I've talked to her on the phone. I've talked to her via text. She's around. She just needs time away. And so Karen's like, look, fine, but I'm going to need to stop hearing that from you and hear it from Dawn. So next time you talk to her, tell me all I'm asking is that she call or text me because I'm worried. And wouldn't you know it, Quinn?
2: Karen gets a Tell text me. later that very same day. What Can a you leave
1: the time I in? spelled <laughs>
2: T-H-Y-M-I-N-G. Yeah. Wow. Yes, that's right. That's so it's another pun. It is from Dawn and it's to Karen. And it says that she needs some time to think, you know, that she's moving back east and would call when she's settled and gets a new phone number because no red flags there. Um But what's interesting about it is, you know, when you have a best friend, when you have someone you text all the time, you have shorthand, you know, you have things that you say or things that you do, whether it's emojis you use. I don't care what it is, but you just... And if someone else is texting you from that number... It just hits different. And Karen recalls how it had a bunch of spelling and punctuation errors, and that was very unlike Dawn. We imagine Dawn to, like, love a a grammar, love a comma, love an Oxford comma. Um, And the text, the most telling part of this text that she gets from, quote, Dawn, is that it's signed Love Pixie, spelled P-I-X-Y, which is uh, Karen's nickname for Dawn. However it's spelled incorrectly. It should be spelled P-I-X-I-E, which frankly is the only appropriate way to spell Pixie. Um, And the fact that it's spelled wrong, it just, her blink goes off and this already fraught situation. She feels sick. It's not a good situation.
1: She just doesn't feel right. So look, at this point, Karen is suspicious. She's suspicious of where the hell her friend Don went, and she's got a pretty good reason to be. And also, I'd add that she's not alone. So we told you guys, David and Don work at Time Cafe. It's in a strip mall, and there's a few other businesses there, motorcycle shop being one of them that is run by a guy named Joe Kakasi. Joe, Don, and David were all pals, and they Uh, talk every day. Same business park. Yeah, and yeah, they're next door neighbors, so they're like, "Hey, what's up? How's your motorcycles? Hey, what's up? How's your..." uh focaccia I don't know I'm assuming Time so, Cafe does have focaccia for sure it, it, I assumed so too um, did not look at their menu oddly weird Gosh, for you that's how I like myself weird for you well Joe knows what's on the menu because he goes all the time so he could tell us about the focaccia in fact he goes enough that he and Don have kind of buddied up and believe it or not Don actually has a secret with Joe wait a minute is it what I think it is no, it's not sexy. Okay, that's
2: boring. <laughs> it's, it's it's financial. It's financial.
1: <laughs> boring.
2: I knew that, but I thought it would be fun to trick our listeners. <laughs> um, so it's a financial arrangement, and at some point over the summer, Dawn came to Joe's shop without David, and she brings with her six hundred and forty dollars in cash in an envelope, and she asks Joe if he can store it for her. She calls mm-hmm. it her little nest egg. It's like
1: she's... Very original. Very...
2: I don't know if you've heard of that phrase, nest egg. It's um, it's where you squirrel money away for just something big and extravagant later. But Joe doesn't really know what she wants to use a $640 in cash for and why she can't store it at home. But he says, sure, why not? So he agrees to store this money for her over the next several weeks. And as it turns out, the day before Dawn went missing, aka Dawn died, Dawn calls Joe she calls him and she says, hey, could I come by the shop to store some more money? Um, but of course, after this phone call, she never showed up. And and Joe is going, that's weird.
1: That's weird. Yeah. He's like, what's going on? Where's Dawn? What the hell's up, David? And David's like, ugh. Oh, you guys ready for another version it. of what happened? Let's get into it. here it is. Ugh. Fired Don had to fire her for drinking on the job, which okay. Also, <sighs> mishandling the money, and then she left. Wait, and it, it, yeah. I gotta say, Go drinking ahead. on the job, Quinn. You've worked
2: in a restaurant. I've worked at a bar. Drinking on the it's job part of the is job. part of the job. <laughs> you fired her for something that it's everyone your job does. Description. Weird, weird yeah. move. No.
1: No, and of course Joe doesn't believe this for a second. So he he's he says that when this happened, he he says, "I'm just stunned. I'm thinking to myself, did you forget who I am? I'm over at your restaurant every night. Your wife's over here every day. This isn't flying. You're you're lying to me." Also, you fired your wife?
2: Could <laughs> you imagine? I No. I I think it's impossible because it is. That's all I'll say. But also, the fact <laughs> is so like Russell, if she because it didn't, it happen. didn't happen. But also, it's like if she stored her money and left and she got fired from her job, Joe knows about this nest egg. Joe's going, why but didn't David she? Pick- doesn't. Exactly. So Joe's going, I know she's got six hundred and forty dollars out. And if she lost her job and if she was headed out of town, you bet your bottom dollar, pun intended, she'd be coming over to my shop for her bottom dollar. For her bottom freaking dollar. Um so it's been two weeks now since Dawn's disappeared. We've got, you know, Karen really worried. We've got Joe really worried. We've got David making up God knows what excuse with whoever asks him what's up. And sleeping with Kathy. Then he starts to sleep with Kathy. He starts dating that little, little Kathy um, who took over all the positions. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> Both at the restaurant and in the bedroom. Um, and she's significantly younger. She's in her twenties. David is in his fifties. Kathy, I mean, listen, I, I like to think that you are just like a young, naive little lady. But girl, you know, think this is like really there's was. a lot of red flags here. And I think we've all been in our 20s. We've all made a mistake, but I'm going, Kathy. Kathy, red flag
1: is like the understatement of the century. She goes over to the house and remember, Don has left. Yeah. He didn't get rid of Don's shit. So she opens the closet. It's like Don's clothes are in there. Don's stuff is there. And she's like, Can I borrow pajamas from Don? Just going on. Kathy, poor Kathy. She probably did say that. She's, I I like to think that when she looked around and saw all of Kathy's stuff was there, she starts scratching her head um, because I sure would. So at this point, David's life is getting a little off kilter if it wasn't already when he woke up to his tied up wife dead. Um, You know, this is his fault. He's making all the wrong choices and coupled with the stress of running a restaurant, having his neighbors, his friends. All suspicious of him. Everybody's like, wait a minute. Why is she gone? Things are just getting out of control. He needs help. And who, he can't do this alone. And who do you call?
2: Your daughter. Your daughter. <laughs> you call your daughter from your first marriage, Jackie. He calls Jackie. She's, by the way, in South Carolina. They're in California. She's literally on the other side of the Americas, yeah. at the lower 48. And he calls Jackie and he goes, Jackie, listen, I really need some help. You know, Don and I, we got in a fight, and Don had taken off for a few days. Which again, count them, that's story number four. So Jackie being the good daughter that she is, she hops in a plane, she flies over, she's going to help her dad, she arrives in early November, and David then asks, I can't even, this one is shocking to me, once Jackie is there, David asks Kathy, his new girlfriend, and Jackie to help him box up Dawn's clothes. You're asking your new girlfriend and your daughter to and your pack daughter up your daughter
1: to clean up your mess, literally. Literally
2: to clean up your mess. And he ends up showing them text messages from quote Dawn where she says that she still loves David, but she isn't coming back. Which knowing what we know, I this part shocks me to my core, where This is like, I think David's a narcissist just on this alone, because the fact that Mm -hmm. Dawn, this fictional Dawn, because we know she's dead at this point, is texting David that she still loves him, but she's not coming back. And he shows it to his daughter and his new girlfriend. That is sick. That is gross. That is disgusting behavior, right? Mm. hundred Like knowing she's dead and you killed her,
1: she's texting you that she still loves you. Get a life. It's been three weeks, and on November 8th, 2009, Dawn's sister has had enough, and she files a missing persons report in L.A., and they start to investigate. So they're putting up flyers with Dawn's photo on it. Um, They're going around contacting the local authorities and agencies. Missing persons detectives are looking through her bank, through her cell phone records. They're talking to family members. They're talking to friends. Feels like they might close in fast because I know those family members and friends are feeling suspicious. Well, and who's the first person you're going to interview in this situation? Mm.
2: David, her husband. So just two days later, Sheriff Deputy James Dondas goes to David's apartment in Lomita and he's there and they're there to interview him, right? So David, you'd think at this point David would have told the story enough times that it would be consistent.
1: No, because he's told it different every time. He doesn't remember what he said last or first or He says that
2: him and Dawn had marital troubles because of her substance abuse issues. He says that they did fight on October 18th because she was mad at how much time he spent at the restaurant. Not about okay. her going to rehab, not about her stealing money from the restaurant. It's about as much time it's about how much time he was spending at the restaurant. Interesting. We never know which is the truth. So the police are hearing this account and going, okay, do I believe you? You got in a fight with the person the day she disappeared. It's pretty obvious that he's got something to do with this.
1: Yeah, and he's been lying now for three weeks. He's sort of reaching a, a breaking point here um, because, like you said, he's he's not um, a person with a healthy lifestyle, right? And he's trying to keep a secret, trying to keep a pretty big secret, not and he's well. roping people in. <laughs> And we know he's somebody that is also trying to own a restaurant at this time. I mean, there's a lot of stress going on. It's a lot of chaos. And one night, David and Jackie, his daughter, are driving home from the restaurant. They're both drunk. Jackie is stoned from smoking weed. um, And David drunkenly just starts to cry. Imagine you're a little bit stoned and drunk.
2: And your dad's driving you stoned and drunk?
1: which is right well already get there but then be like what is your headspace to receive your dad what kind. is about to be yeah. a new story which is that David starts to cry starts to tell Jackie actually Don isn't coming back Don's not coming back ever and he starts to tell her what actually happened on October 18th to Don
2: and it's what we told you earlier in the story. Well, he tells her almost everything. He tells his daughter that he tied Dawn up and that she choked to death on her own vomit. And he insists that this all has been a terrible accident. He didn't mean to kill her. He, he But he does tell Jackie that no one will ever find Dawn's body. It's It's never going to be found again. It's gone. And... Jackie is taking this in. She's stoned. She's drunk. This is a lot, right? I I can't I can't imagine how that must feel to receive this information about your father. It's confusing. It's really confusing. And you know, she she makes the choice to keep this secret, you know, to not go to the police right away. She says I'm his kid. I don't want to see my dad in prison for the rest of his life. And I felt obligated to hide that secret
1: for him. I mean, he's put her in an impossible Impossible. situation. This is your kid, and you're asking them to essentially break the law on your behalf. Not essentially, to
2: definitely break the law. This is like aiding and abetting after the fact.
1: A murder. And, And here's the truth, too. Like, she's already been helping him when she didn't know the story. Mm -hmm. She was packing up those belongings and getting rid of them and really, like, cleaning up evidence at the scene of the crime, which was their home. And she had dropped everything to help her dad, who she thought got left by his wife and was, you know, dealing with the restaurant and all this. It's like, sure, I'll come help you, dad. And now the real story comes out of, like, I might have done a murder. And it's like, you know, I know he's putting it in the, he's putting the label of accident on it, but still to receive all that. And then like, I don't know what you think, uh, listeners, but if, if your parent. Oh I can't told even put, you I this. don't think we
2: can it's like that is such an you impossible You can't thing. imagine
1: it of course because most of us don't have parents where that would be a possibility but it is a thing where I am not um I'm not going to condemn her allegiance right. to her father in this in this situation because I do think that when this happens your love for a parent or a child or a sibling will often outweigh justice right. or your need to to seek it for someone that you weren't as well, close I'm to I'm also
2: curious of like what Jackie's relationship was with Don, right? I mean, I think what's crazy, though, is like, not only does she receive this information, but it goes a step further,
1: right? Oh, sure. Yeah, because she has to now help with the cover-up, really. Well, she doesn't have to, but she decides to. She decides to help him. And she texts from Don's phone to hide the fact that Don is dead. She texts, this is Don. I'm okay. I'm in Florida, and I'm here to start over. Then after sending that text, she helps to get rid of that phone. So she becomes in this moment her father's accomplice. So on December 9th, 2009,
2: David is interviewed by the police again. And this time they bring their little recording device so they can get him on tape. And at this point, the claims he makes about Dawn are ramped up, right? He says that she's drinking so much. He says that she's drinking like 18 beers a day, which is a lot of beers. Um, in addition, her behavior is erratic. He says that she's yelling at people at the restaurant, the fellow staff. He's saying that she's causing cash shortages of $200 to $300 by miscalculating customer bills. He's saying that she's not dependable. And then he tells them the story about the day before Don went missing.
1: Right, and that on October 18th, 2009, what had happened in his words, is that he left Dawn at home. He went to the restaurant. Then he went to a bar with a man that he was interviewing for chef for his restaurant. Then he goes home. Dawn's gone. dawn has gone. Don comes home. He sees her again the next week. She's got, you know, she looks terrible. She, Her clothes clearly haven't been washed. She smells of booze. It's got Bender vibes. And she says to David, I want us to leave this restaurant business, leave everything behind and move to the mountains and, you know, grow time, not operate time. Uh, It's that vibe. And David is like, you got to get help. You got to go to rehab. And she's like, you know what? You're right. So two days later, she packs up and leaves town supposedly to do so. And that is our newest version of David's story. And it's after she leaves the second time That
2: over the next couple of weeks, David gets a couple of text messages from her. She calls him and they speak on the phone twice. And in one of the text messages, here we are again with him saying that she loved him. Dawn is saying that she loves David and needs some time to work things out. Again, I just have to highlight, he's writing these texts Saying how much like he's the author of this woman who he murdered, who he killed, and he's putting her last words saying that I it's I love you. I I gotta tell you, if if what he says happened, if she did choke on her vomit, I pr- I'm gonna assume her last thought was, F- you I hate
1: you, David. Not I love you. Look, the police they're not buying what David's selling, obviously, because even if Dawn, even if the story is the story he just told. Why the hell wouldn't Dawn have talked to any of her friends right. after that happened? That's not adding up. And then Karen's talking to them and saying, look, this is a couple that used to fight. They used to fight all the time. And it was bad fights. In fact, my friend Dawn would go hide in the bathroom to try to keep safe and stay away from David. Which, again, if we do have
2: evidence of da- – of, of if we have evidence, we have stories, according to Dawn – of her having to flee David from the bathroom because of his violent temper. I don't know. I'm just calling into question the whole story in the first place that she died with a duct tape over her mouth. I'm just saying. Um, But to your point, it's like she's telling this to her friend Karen, right? She's communicating this to Karen Mm -hmm. the whole time, so it doesn't make sense why Karen would be out of the loop. In any of this conversation, why yeah. why Don would just leave her high and dry, and in addition, it's the same deal with the story that Joe Kakasi knows, right? Why would Don leave behind the hundreds of dollars that she has being stored there under his watchful eye? It's just it's just
1: not adding up, right? No, yeah. but you know they don't have a body. It's been ten months. They haven't f- seen Don alive. They haven't seen Don dead. So in August of 2010, the missing persons they decide this is. Not a missing person. This is likely a homicide. Let's change it to a homicide investigation. And these new homicide detectives get a warrant for David's apartment. And they go in and they find blood stains on the bedroom wall. Now, we don't know from even David's version where he, you know, let her get tied up and barf and she died. In that that was in version, the living room. I don't see where the blood comes – well, I don't see where the blood comes from yeah. is what I'm saying in that version. So I'm saying even, even to this day, every iteration we have of this story as told by David, I don't it's get the feeling we necessarily time. have the correct one. No, I don't what either. What I do know is they see this blood – and they cannot test it because it's it's been too long and these samples are going to be too degraded.
2: Well, and then a few months go by and they go, we got to talk to his daughter, Jackie, right? She must know something. But she's already moved back to South Carolina. I assume she helped her dad with the restaurant. She found out that he's a murderer Ugh. and she's like, I got to get out of Dodge. I don't think this is a healthy, safe, familial environment for me. So she books it back to South Carolina. Um, and so the police know that she was around. And you know what? It's a good bet because while she's being interviewed, she's not, while she's going to defend her dad, but if anyone puts a little pressure on her, she's going to crack. I think she knows this is wrong. So she confesses to what her dad told her. She tells them everything she knows and she totally cooperates with the investigation. And after she does, the detectives instruct her to call her dad and
1: tell him that she told the police the truth. The next day, which is February 23rd, 2011, David shows Kathy a local article about how the police are now investigating Dawn's disappearance as a murder. I don't know how much Kathy knows at this point, but I'd have been interested in being a fly on that wall when she sees that article. I just wonder what she's thinking when he's like, check this out. My name's in the paper. Like, ay ay ay, Kathy, get out of there.
2: You know, when you're feeling anxious, I've I've never murdered anyone, so I don't know what would go along with that sort of anxiety. Um, But Mm -hmm. I have spoken ill about someone, so I I understand feeling fearful. And so I have a feeling he sees his article, and it's like his anxiety and fear knows no bounds, and so there's no boundaries, and he just needs to talk to someone, and Kathy is there.
1: Well, I think he wants – yeah, he probably wants to bounce ideas Mm -hmm. off her of what do you think, what do you think, what do you think, because the thing is the police – had a hand in this article Which it's not wild. just a, it's not just a journalist writing it it's, it's sort of them too because they said you gotta write that we're closing in on a suspect and talk about how we found blood in David's apartment and, th- the, you know, that was true. We just told you they found blood. But remember, it's too old to test. It didn't do him a bit of good. But that's not what the article says. It's this carefully placed piece of journalism to try to make David sweat. And now it's just pouring out of him. Well,
2: keep in mind, lest we forget, his daughter, the day before, called him and said, Hey, Dad, I told them the truth. Right. So if, like, the walls are closing in, it is getting awfully claustrophobic in David's head. And after showing Kathy the article, he tells Kathy that he's sorry, which frankly, I don't know if you, why don't you be sorry to Don, not Kathy. Um, but he tells Kathy that Don is not coming back. He tells her that he killed Don by accident. And then David and Kathy, they get into his car and he starts driving. He's crying. He's driving. This is, this feels like a very scary moment. Um, And the police are on him. I think they know he's out and about. And they start tailing him. Mm -hmm. They put their sirens on. They put their lights on. They try to pull him over. And he does not. He resists. He speeds away. And then David gets to this seaside cliff, a scenic overlook,
1: and he stops his car. He hops out of the car, though. He yeah. doesn't just stop. He, like, leaps out. And I think Kathy's like, what are you What's doing? Happening? Like, going after him. And he's walking over to the edge just saying sorry. And he's saying sorry again and again. And he's like, no one is going to believe me. Uh, presumably meaning no one will believe this was an accident. And he says to Kathy, who's got to be really panicked at this point, tell my mom and my brother that I love them. And no sooner does he say that, And he throws himself off this 80-foot cliff. And Kathy says, the minute that I saw him jump over, that's when reality really, really set in, that this woman really is gone. And when I saw him jump, I thought to myself, oh, my God, he's dead too.
2: At David's funeral, the town is a buzz. Right? We still don't have a body from dawn, and here we have David. Psych. There was no funeral, and do you want to know why? Because David is alive. He survived an eighty-foot drop off a cliff.
1: It's really crazy. It's, it's so like- crazy. You did not see that coming. I, I, did I not, didn't either. I mean when you read that somebody leapt off an 80-foot seaside cliff, it is just not in the cards that they could have survived. Well,
2: he did. He did because the police were right there and they called a rescue helicopter which in my mind, is is too nice for him. Um, but they call a rescue helicopter. He is taken to a nearby hospital. A local reporter tells CBS that he landed on his feet. So his legs were totally shattered and his hips were completely broken.
1: I do feel that this is an interesting karmic retribution yeah, moment of like, you just want to vanish and run away from this problem and you don't get to. No. You know, and not only that, but here's some broken hips. So he goes to the hospital. Detectives are like, Guess what? We brought you a balloon. We'd love to talk a little more. We've bought here's you a balloon questions. and a warrant. <laughs> here's a yeah. balloon. And, and, and the balloon
2: and is a warrant. They got yeah. it specially
1: printed it was and they hand it. Well they have to him. some
2: Mylar balloons in that at the
1: police station, just in case. Mylar warrant warrant <laughs> yeah. balloons. With your Miranda well, at this rights point, on one it's, side. it's David is going to talk because he, I mean, it seems like he's given up. He did just jump off a cliff. So now he's going to tell them the new version of October 18th, 2009, which is the same story you guys have heard several times by now. Uh, the one where they had a fight, she moved a dresser, he taped her up, she was dead the next day. And after telling this story, They charge David with Don's murder.
2: It's interesting because the police are interviewing after this life-shattering accident. No pun intended. Mm. Well, pun intended. I meant it. But you know, he's got to be hopped up on pain pills, medication, machinery. Like I, I I am curious of like the ethics of that. Can you? Can you interview someone? Yeah, exactly. Under
1: the influence
2: of of some power. Yeah, are you mentally sound? To withstand questioning, right? Um, But the one thing that he doesn't answer in this case is, where is Dawn? All we know so far is you're never going to see her again. She's never coming back. No one's ever going to find her. But it's like, where is she? Where is her body? Where are we going to find her? Um, And so about two weeks later, David ends up telling the police that he wants to talk to them again. And he wants to share more context to his story. And within that context, it's also what happened to Don's
1: body. Right. So he says to them when they come back, I realized Don was dead. I didn't know what to do. And I came up with this idea to clean the grease traps at the restaurant and to take that and co the excess protein in those units. Which, this already so, sounds
2: like someone hopped up on pain pills. Like, I can't even imagine. Like, 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 what? Does that make sense to you at all?
1: I, I'm not... No. it. I don't understand science. I don't understand cooking. I'm really the wrong person to ask. But it does make sense to me that if you put someone's body in a 55-gallon drum of boiling water, weigh it down with weights, and cook it for a bunch of days, oh. that maybe... It's not going to be a body anymore like that. I don't think you need to understand those things to get that. And that is exactly what he's trying to say he did. He's saying that he mixed Don's remains with grease and other garbage like restaurant debris and then was just cooking it down and putting it in garbage bags and throwing it away. He says the only part of Don that he would still have is her skull. And he says he hid it in his mom's attic because he didn't know what to do with it.
2: I just does anybody need a minute? Is everybody okay? I know that's a lot to
1: unpack because oh god, it's so gross. I mean, is the restaurant in business? While that's a thing. Doing that this? doesn't make sense to me. It he's, doesn't make any sense. What does it smell like in that restaurant if you're cooking a person? It's four days, and I, as we know, money was
2: tight in that restaurant. I mean, the next day we know Did he went shut to a meeting. Down. Well, the next day we know he went to a meeting with this upcoming chef, and so he just was boiling his wife's body while he's in this meeting while he's serving other people food. It's just oh, it gives me such the heebie-jeebies and it just doesn't totally make sense to me either.
1: I'm just like I don't know if I believe him or not. <laughs> but it's like he, they we didn't find a body, so it's like uh, well, we, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I
2: I have a hard time believing him because his story has changed and in this situation he's hopped up on painkillers right? He's, Uh he's clearly in a lot of pain. Two weeks does not solve a shattered leg and shattered hips, right? So you got to imagine that the painkillers are flowing. Um, but according to police, he seems very clear headed. Um, but to make matters a little stickier and a little less believable is the police end up going to his mother's house to search her attic for this skull and they never found the skull in his mom's attic.
1: That part's odd to me because here he is. It, it's such a horrible story. It's so disgusting. It's so upsetting. Uh, who knows why he decides to tell them, but you've got to, you've got to assume, oh, it must be guilt, and he really wants them to know what happened. Um, but then if the skull part's a lie, how do you believe the rest? And if he did know where the skull was, it seems like it's – Wouldn't be any more damning to tell them that. (laughs) Well, you also wonder, like, is he lying for his own
2: self-preservation or is he lying because the night in question where he killed Don, whether it was accidental or not, he was drinking on cocaine and he took an Ambien to me that is a recipe for a blackout does he know, does what, he he know did? what he did right we found blood we don't know if the blood in the bedroom was, re- was 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 related to her was was connected mm-hmm. to this incident at all but i got to tell you those three drugs i mean that that does lead to some memory loss like if he's half asleep if he's twilighting like if the coke is bringing him up and the ambien is bringing him down i just i feel like physiologically that it has to do something with your brain and mm-hmm. if If he yeah, yeah, I just I he could also have dreamed things like I just don't totally trust this guy who I what I do know is he did have something to do with her death. I know he killed her, whether it was a violent outburst or it was accidental. I don't know. Do I believe that he boiled her body down? That's what he says. But again, I don't think he's a reliable narrator.
1: In September 2012, David Viennes is tried for the murder of Don Viennes in a California courtroom and in spite of that wackadoodle a doodle disgusting hospital bed confession, David's going to turn around and plead not guilty what he says is that was all BS, I was hallucinating, I had a traumatic injury, I was then on pills and I was, I, I didn't boil a body, first of all her death was completely an accident. I had her tied up because I was looking out for her. I didn't want her to
2: hurt herself.
1: Again. I'm a good man.
2: The fact is, is you tied someone up, and if something happens and you've restricted them, that's on you, dude. That's totally on you, in my opinion. While David doesn't testify, who else does? We have Karen Patterson, who is um, Don's friend, who she missed going to chemo with, and we also have Jackie Vian's who is his daughter, who he confessed to as well. And so their testimonies alongside his prior taped confession is enough for the jury to believe that David didn't plan to kill Dawn, but he certainly is responsible for her death. So he is convicted of second-degree murder, which is murder, just not premeditated. One juror later remarks that innocent people just don't jump off cliffs, which I have to say, I agree.
1: I agree. Yeah. And after the verdict, David fires his lawyer because certainly it's your lawyer's fault, right? (laughs) David, you really stacked this mountain of evidence against yourself. Um, And David's like, I'm going to just represent myself. Um, Let's see how that goes. Yeah. What does he tell them? Sentencing, he (laughs) says to the judge and to Don's family, no one loved Don more than he did. Her family is his family, which I, I really don't think they want to hear that from you no, right now, David. No. But he really wants to say it. He's like slamming his hand down on the table as he's making points, it just I, I feel embarrassed for him. Do
2: you think he showed the texts from Dawn saying that she loved him? The texts that he look, wrote, look at these she texts. Loves that, me. She, look
1: at the number of times after she, texted she died me that I like, texted David, myself that she loved in the me. Trial we proved that was you, <laughs> like I, this he's guy. The a, fact a that he's saying.
2: That no one loved Dawn more than he did. And then two weeks after her death disappearance, he starts dating someone at the restaurant too. Like he said good riddance. He said good riddance, like, and you know what? Maybe she did love you, but look what you did. Look what you did. If she did love you, it's worse. You didn't love her. It's worse. You didn't love her. (sighs) Exactly. He's not convincing. I mean, I don't think he gets past this one bit whatsoever uh uh and uh, to which is surprising to no one he is not convincing in his own defense he probably would have been better off keeping his lawyer employed david is sentenced to 15 years to life in prison all of which he's going to spend in a wheelchair because david vians is permanently handicapped from jumping off that cliff and this year he is eligible for parole
1: and if you guys have any thoughts about this um Sort of mysterious case. Well, do do you you believe? Do you believe him? Do you believe David? Do you Quinn? But I'm asking you. Wait, do you believe him? Oh, that was to me. Mm -hmm. I just thought you were talking to listeners. Do I believe David? I do not. I do not believe him. I I do believe he was responsible. um, Thousand percent. Yeah, I think that he was hopped up on drugs, and I think that he um, I think he did do something to get rid of the body for sure, but I don't think even he necessarily knows what it is. And I think um, he's probably had a lot of nightmares and a lot of hallucinations, and I, I don't think he knows necessarily because he doesn't have any reason to hide it. He was found guilty. Um, telling people where they could find her body wouldn't uh, harm him at this point.
2: What is surprising to me about this case, because we've covered cases in the past of on our old podcast, we covered cases where they weren't tried because there was no body. And I think this is pretty rare to have to have a conviction, a case, a trial without a body. I think this is a very yeah. rare set of circumstances. And I think it just proves to how bad he is at lying and how like there's no doubt in anyone's mind that he did this.
1: Well, if you have something you'd uh, like Carrie and I to to know or some thoughts about uh, this case, then please uh, hit hit social media. Hit us up there with hashtag Crime of a Lifetime. And uh, we've got Two more episodes left. We hope you will join us, and then we will see you in the future at Truly Darkly Creeply. And you
2: can also follow Truly Darkly Creeply on Instagram. So please feel free to find us there, and we'd love to chat and connect and uh, meet you on over on that podcast. Thanks so much, y'all.
1: Told you the story. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime. And stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing, because it just might be the case we talk about next.
2: We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most useful were the following, an appellate court document from People v. Viennes, and an episode of CBS News 48 Hours entitled Over the Edge. If you'd like to learn more about this story,
1: we highly recommend
2: you check out these sources.
1: Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us. Quinlan Posner and Carrie Epema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, a Television Networks, LLC.